story is told of Stumpy and his wife Martha, who went to the state fair every year. And uh, what makes the story funny is the name Stumpy. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, every year Stumpy would say to Martha, he'd say, you know, I'd like to ride on that there airplane. And he'd point over and there's a biplane over there and he'd look at that. And every year he'd go, he'd say, you know, I want to ride on that plane. And every year Martha would say the same thing. I know Stumpy, but that airplane ride costs $10 and $10 is $10. And so finally this year Stumpy and Martha went to the fair and he said, Martha, I'm 71 years old. If I don't ride that airplane this year, I may never get another chance. And so Martha replied again, Stumpy, that their airplane ride costs $10 and $10 is $10. Well, the pilot overheard this interchange that was going on between these two, and he said, listen, I'll make you a deal. I'll take you both up if you promise you don't say one word. I don't hear a scream. I don't hear a peep. I don't hear a sound out of you. I'll take you both up. And uh, he said, and I won't charge you anything if you can be quiet. And so, they, hey, a deal's a deal. That sounds like a pretty good one. So they both get in this biplane, and up he goes. And this guy just goes to work. I mean, he starts doing these turns and these flips and these somersaults. He starts doing dives, and, man, he doesn't hear a peep. And this goes on, he repeats everything over and over again, and he doesn't hear a thing. He lands the plane, he gets out, and, uh, you know, he goes to Stump. He said, man, I'm surprised I didn't hear a word out of you because, man, usually I hear people when I'm doing my, my flips and turns and twists and dives, and he goes, well, to be honest with you, I almost said something when Martha fell out. <laughs> he said, but you know what, but $10 is $10. <laughs> you know, and... and <laughs> Now, now there's a guy, I should save that for Mother's Day, shouldn't I? It may come back. Well, there's a guy that has uh, some twisted priorities. And, you know, and today in our ongoing study through Luke's gospel, we're introduced uh, to a man with a similar problem of wrong priorities. You know, he was a man that when I was reading through this, I couldn't help but think he would agree with Stumpy, but $10 is $10. And so if you turn with me to Luke 18, we'll pick up on this particular passage. We're going to see uh, what I've entitled the downside of wealth. Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 18, we read these words. It says, And a certain ruler questioned him, speaking of Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age that's to come eternal life. You know, we often hear in our culture, especially of all the benefits that come with wealth. 
you know, wealth or money. You know, it, it, uh, it gives us access to people with uh, power or privilege, people who have influence, wealth or money. You know, with it comes uh, the power to make decisions. Uh, with wealth or money, we can buy all of our heart's desires when it comes to material things. And we often hear in our culture, and especially in a capitalistic economy, that, you know what, the, the acquiring of wealth is the thing that moves our machine, our economic machine, f- forward. And so what's promoted as a, as a very good thing. And yet the Bible has much to say about wealth, has much to say about riches or money. And it gives us a very clear picture, both good and bad, the pros and the cons, or as I've titled this message, you know, the upside and the downside. You know, and there are both sides. It's a double-edged sword. And we need to recognize and understand that, you know, the Bible has much to say on the subject of money and sheds light on all of these things. And in this particular passage, we see the ominous side or the dark side of wealth. And what it teaches us is that there is a downside or a dark side that, you know, we've got to be careful that we never place our faith or our trust in our wealth or possessions, material things, rather than in God. And that really is the message, the underlying message is that here was a man who, as we'll see, placed his faith and his trust in that which could not sustain him. He placed his faith and his trust in that which could, which could never provide eternal life. You know, Jesus had gone on record of saying, you know, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what would a man exchange for his soul? I mean, what would you give, you know, for something that is eternal? What would you do something that's temporal for? And so we look at this and we begin to recognize, and if you want to follow along, we're going to take a look at the passage and the outline that's been provided. And there are several things that stand out as I was going through this. The first one was, you know, let's look at the request of this certain ruler that we see in verse 18. It says that a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, and the question itself indicates that here was a man who has accomplished everything the world has to offer, and yet he realized that there was something missing in his life. We're told through the passage in the, in the uh, parallel passages in the other Gospels uh, about the same account that this man was extremely wealthy. He was very wealthy. He had much stuff. And so he was a man that in our, in our culture today would say, there goes a successful man. Because typically we measure people by what their economic ability is. You know, we see their possessions. We see how they dress. They see the house they live in, the car that they drive. We look at them and, and we immediately label them, oh, there's somebody who's successful. And yet at the same time, God says, well, you know what? Looks, you know, looks are deceptive. You know, the man doesn't look at the outward appearance. I mean, God doesn't look at the outward appearance of a man, but he looks at the heart. And while the world looks at, quote, successful people, there are people that are failures in the sight of God because they, hasn't, they haven't grasped that which is important. You know, as I was going through this, I was reminded of Solomon's account in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to look at that with me, it's in Ecclesiastes 2, starting with verse 1 where Solomon came to the same conclusion where he said, man, you know what, basically he's saying in a nutshell, I've, I've done everything the world has to offer, and you know what, and it's just chasing the wind. He said, I said to myself, come and I'll test you with pleasure, and behold, it too was futile. I enjoyed myself, but there was nothing to it. He says, I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does that accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what was good there was for the sons of men to do under heaven the years of their lives. And he was saying that, man, you know what, I went out. And, and, and he wasn't getting loaded. He wasn't getting high. He wasn't getting wasted. He was saying, hey, I explored and my mind still guided me. It was like, you know, I went to the best restaurant, so to speak. I had the best meals. I got the right wine that went with the right food. You know, I, I knew the difference between white and red, what went with fish, what went with meat. 
feet. You know, it's like, man, I mastered all these decisions. And, you know, and I enjoyed all of this. And at the end of all of it, I went, well, what's the purpose to it all? So, so, you know, I got bored with that and I enlarged my works and I built houses for myself and vineyards and made gardens and parks for myself and I planted in, in them all kind of fruit trees and I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate, a, a, you know, a growing trees. And he's saying, you know, I did all these things and I, I just invested myself in projects. You know, I started up one company and I got bored with that and I went and started another company. I got bored with that and I went and started something else and, you know, and I sold that and I made money there and I went over here and I did this and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I'm missing in life, what the purpose is and, man, I just haven't got it. So I bought male and female slaves and home-born slaves and possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. So I had stuff. I had everything that I could ever want, and I collected for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. You know, I had money, and I got more money, and I had a jewelry, and I got more jewelry, and we had this ring, and I got that ring, and I got this necklace and that one. And it's like, man, you know, it just, it, this never was enough. So I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desire, I didn't refuse. And I didn't withhold from my heart any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of my labor. And this was my reward. And I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity, striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun." He goes, man, you know what? And it still left me empty. It, 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 it filled a lot of time and it provided temporary pleasure. And I enjoyed some of it. But at the end of all of it, when I stood back and looked at it and went, you know what? What is it all about? And the word vanity is chasing soap bubbles. It's like I'm just running around chasing bubbles. They look pretty in the wind and they look pretty when the sun shines against it. And I get all these different colors. But you know what? It's just a total waste of time. And so the whole book of Ecclesiastes helps man to understand that life, you know, life outside of a relationship with God is empty and futile and meaningless. And how important it is to come to know the creator who has made us to have fellowship with him and enjoy the relationship with him. And in him we find purpose. And so as we look at this, we begin to recognize and understand going back to Luke chapter 18 uh, is, is that here was a man in a similar situation. And I know today there are people that listen to this message. There may be some of you are here in a very similar situation. There's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know what? There's nothing new. You know what Solomon struggled with years and years ago? People struggle with in the day of Jesus. People struggle with today. And that is what's the purpose and meaning of life. And so he comes back to it and he said, you know, and he goes and he asks this question and it's an excellent question. It's a great question, but it's one that we recognize that everything that he had and everything that he accomplished could not answer the burning question of his heart. And that is this, what do I got to do to have eternal life? What do I have to do to make sure that I'm right with God? What do I have to do to make sure that the day that I'm absent from this body, that I'll be present with the Lord? We would put in the vernacular today, what do I got to do to make sure that when I die, and I know I'm going to die, but when that day comes, what, what do I got to do to make sure that I go to heaven and not go to hell? And that's the question. It's an excellent question. It's an impressive question. And it's also a question that, that, that you know, is one of great vulnerability. Because here was a man who the world around him looked at him and thought he had it made. He had everything. 
And he is transparent and open in front of Jesus and in front of the crowd saying that you all think I've got everything. He's not saying this, but that's what he's saying by the question. You all think I have everything, but I know that I don't have the most important thing. And that is peace in my own heart and and, and an understanding that I have a right relationship with God. And all this other stuff is just getting in the way. And it's like, I need to know. And so he says, what do I got to do? And he mistakenly believed, as a lot of people believe today, that there was something that he had to do. He had to buy his way to heaven. What he's saying to Jesus, you know, name your price. What do I got to do? How much do I got to give? What do I got to stop doing? What do I got to start doing? What do I got to do? You know, because obviously he's learned in life that everything's negotiable. He's learned when you have money, you can get anything that you want. You may just have to pay a little bit more depending on supply and demand and depending on timing. But he learned that, you know what, there isn't anything in this world that you can't buy if you have enough money. And so what he was saying was, Lord, what do I got to do? Tell me. You know, name your price. And he's pulling his checkbook out. Tell me. Name your price. And he's going to be in for a very rude awakening. As many are in for a rude awakening today, and as many will be when they stand before God one day and say, but Lord, didn't we do all these things? We thought these are the things we needed to do. And he's going to say, be gone. Depart from me, you, you, you workers of iniquity, because I don't even know who you are. And so when we look at this question, we begin to recognize that it's a very impressive question. And it's one that all of us, each of us individually, my prayer is that we would ask that question, God, what do I got to do? To make sure that I'm right with you. Now notice the second thing is the reasoning of Jesus is laid out before he lays out the requirement that he's going to make in this man's life. In order to fully appreciate what he's going to say here in a minute, we've got to understand his reasoning with the man. And I want you to notice Jesus asking him this question. And he said in verse 19, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, he asked them this question for a very specific reason, and he wants them to think with him. And I want you to think with me as well, and that is this. The Old Testament talks about the fact that God alone is good. And there is no mention anywhere in society at that time or that culture in the Talmud or anything else where any rabbi or teacher was ever called good because the Jews refrained from calling anybody good except God. And I like that because, you know, in our culture, and, and, I, and I've struggled with, you know, how easy it is to say things like awesome. Man, that was awesome. Did you see that play he made at third base? Oh, that was awesome. Did you see that hit? That was awesome. You know, and I, and I start to become convicted of the fact that, you know what, I need to reserve certain words for God alone. You know, God is awesome. That was a great play. That was a good hit. You know, that was, you know, a stellar performance, whatever we want to say. But at the end of all of it, it's like, you know what? God, you're awesome. Or maybe just to refrain and say, you know what? God is good. You know, God is good. And I laugh because, you know, the Bible says that when God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible says that, and he said it was good. And, you know, and, and, and it's just talk about the simplicity of that statement. You know, you look around and go, that was good. You know, here's the heavens, here's the earth, here's the stars, here's the moon, here's the sun, here's the ocean, here's all of the vegetation, here's everything that he... And God goes, that was good. You know, talk about keeping it in in the right priority. Then when he creates us, on that day it was very good. 
So, you know, it shows you the priority level here. You know, God has a, a huge love for people. Just keeping it simple, keeping it real. But when you think about this, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 34, 8. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. The point that is being made here is that God has an exclusive claim on goodness and no man can make such a claim in himself. And so what Jesus was doing, and think, and, and, and think with me as he was laying this out, what he was saying is this. Think about this, man. You've called me good. And if you believe that I'm good, you must believe, whether you understand entirely or comprehend it fully, but there is something in your heart that is telling you that you think I'm God. Because if I'm good, I'm God. Because, you know, no, no man is good except God alone. So, listen to me. If you're saying I'm good, whether you understand what you said or not, is that you are recognizing that I am God. So, therefore, if I am God, and you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then what I'm about to tell you to do shouldn't stop you from doing it because you know that I'm God and when God commands something, you do it because you know He's God. He's saying, listen man, follow up here. So now when I require something of you, if you truly love God, you will do whatever it is that I ask of you because the first commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to have no other gods before you. So no matter what God asks you to do, if you love God, you'll do whatever He asks you. And that's the reasoning that's going before what He's about to tell him. He's saying, think about this. Do you really believe I'm good? If you really believe I'm good, then you must believe that I'm God. And if you believe I'm God, then when God speaks, you should listen. Same with you and I. If you really believe in God and you really believe that God is good and you really believe that Jesus is God in human flesh who dwelt among us, then you must also believe that whatever He says we need to do, we need to do. And if you ask Him, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And He gives you the answer, then you better well do it. Or you're going to miss the boat. And that's what's happening. So now let's look at the requirement and it'll make a lot more sense. The requirement of Jesus we're told he says this in verse, in verse 21. He says, listen. I mean, in verse 20. And you know the commandments. He explains it to him. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. In, in Mark's account, it says that, you know what? Jesus, you know, it, it, it talks about the fact that he felt a love for him. And he said that, you know what? Keep the commandments. And so Jesus was moved by compassion and love to share the truth with this man because he knew that, you know what, unless he grasped this, that he is eternally damned. So he said, well, here's what, you know, you know the commandments. Keep them. And let me just run them by you in case you don't remember. Well, here's some. And he just goes with, you know, the last five that deal with the relationship that man has with man and not the ones that man has with God. And he says, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And, you know, and, and look what he says. You know, and you still lack w what is missing. 
He said, but all these things I've kept from my youth. I've done that. He goes, oh, no, you haven't. You're still missing something. So what am I missing? And he's going to go on and he's going to explain it. But when we look at this and we begin to realize this, you've got to ask the question. It's like, you know, why was he asking this question? Jesus flashed on this man these commandments, and tragically, he still missed the point. He said, I've done this. Really? He goes, yeah, I've done that since I was a kid. I've always kept those commandments. You know, he was sincere because there's no indication in the text that, you know, that he wasn't. He really believed that he was a good guy. And we run into people all the time, and I'm sure you do too, that really believe, you know, I'm a good person. Based on what? Well, because I I haven't, you know, cheated on my spouse, and I know people who have. I haven't done that. that, That's good. You know, I, I haven't murdered anybody. You know, I, I don't steal and I don't lie about people. And, you know, I've honored my father and my mother. And, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. He said, I, I've done that. He said, well, you know what? Not really. You haven't really done that. He really thought he did, but he realized he didn't. Now, why did Jesus use the law to try to help him to see what he was blind to? And the illustration I've used in the past and will continue to use, it's the same reason a doctor uses, you know, a, a, a CAT scan or an MRI or a PET scan or something like that. You know, they use these, te- these tools to help people see what they can't see. And so the whole purpose of the law is that God uses his law to help you and I see what God knows about us that we are blind to and that we think we're good. And God goes, no, measure yourself against this standard. What standard is that? The standard of God's laws. And see, the Apostle Paul, if you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 7, was confronted by the same laws of God, and he was a man, pre the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, he was a man who thought he was good until he was confronted with the objective truth of God's Word, and he went, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Romans 7, verse 7 of chapter 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, may it never be. On the contrary. No, listen to what he says. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Notice what he's saying. If it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't know that I was breaking the law. I never would have heard about coveting until God said, thou shalt not covet. He goes, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Because it comes from God who is good. And now let me just put that in very simple terms and that's this. He said, you know what? I thought I was a good guy until I was confronted with God's standard, which is the law. When I measured myself against God's laws, I realized, you know what? I'm guilty of coveting. I wouldn't know what coveting was until I found out what it is. And coveting is wanting what somebody else has, whether it's somebody else's spouse, as the Ten Commandments tell us, or somebody else's property or possessions. I saw something that somebody else had and I want it. And the only reason I want it is because they have it, and I hadn't even thought about ever wanting something like that until I saw you had it, and I know I'm better than you, and I should have whatever you have and more. 
So then he goes, man, but then the law made me realize how guilty I, I was for wanting something that it was somebody else's. And the more I said to myself, that's wrong, don't do that, the more I wanted it. So the more I wanted not to covet, the more I coveted because the more I thought about coveting because the more I became aware of it. And every time I saw things that people had that I won, it made me even more aware of the fact I didn't have it. So I'm really frustrated. And I'm busted. I'm guilty before God. And that's the whole purpose. And so what he's saying is, is that God uses laws to make us realize it's like saying to you, listen, the only thing you've got to do to get into heaven is don't lie. And you go, okay, I won't lie anymore. And the more you promise you won't lie, the more you're going to be tempted to lie. Because the more opportunities come up. And then you'll justify and rationalize it. You won't call it lying. You'll be calling, calling it managing the news. <laughs> there's a reason. But, but, oh, there's an excuse. Oh, okay. You know, the, and then you say, well, you know what? Thou shalt not steal. And you go, well, that's not really stealing. I consider it a self-induced bonus. I've been underpaid for years. And the more you're told, hey, stop cheating at work. You know, stop cheating on your employer. Stop taking personal phone calls and stop doing things that you should be doing at home. That now you do it at work and you're stealing from your employer. Oh, you know, now I'm aware that that's stealing and now that I think that that's wrong and I know that it's wrong and I'm committed not to do that anymore, the more you'll be tempted to do it and the more that you'll fail. Why? Because the law kills us. It just kills us. It hammers us. The more we try to do what God says is right, the less likely it is we are to do it because sin dwells in us. And so Paul went, I'm guilty. But he wouldn't known he was guilty till God said, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. Measure yourself against it. And he went, wow. Now go back to Luke chapter 18. See, God uses his laws, his statutes, and, and his commandments, precepts, whatever you want to call them, to reveal what is hidden from us, not from God, because God already knows us. He knows how guilty we are so that we will recognize our guilt and seek his mercy. Still blinded to his own sin, verse 21, this man says, hey, you know what? I've kept all that. I've done that. I'm a good guy. And Jesus' argument to him and to all self-evaluated good people, he said this, okay, but there's one thing that you still lack. What is that? You need to go and sell everything you own, distribute it to the poor, and come and follow me. And you shall have eternal life. Now, is that clear enough to everybody what he told them to do? That's very clear, very concise. Sell everything you own, distribute it or give it all to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, remember, if you really love me and you really think that I'm God, then whatever I tell you to do, you're going to be willing to do because there's, you know what? Nothing that comes between you and me, right? So just go do it. And what did he say? Is there anybody else up there? Can't, can't, is, there, is there another option? I mean, look at this. Jesus went straight to the root problem. What was this man's sin that he was blinded to? The same sin that Paul was blinded to. He coveted things. He didn't have enough stuff. He had a lot of stuff, but he kept accumulating stuff. And now God said, get rid of your stuff. And he goes, I'm not getting rid of my stuff. And that's why Jesus said, you can't love both God and money. You're going to despise the one. You're going to hate one and love the other. 
So if God says, I don't want you to have any more money, get rid of all your stuff, and you really love God, you say, that's not a problem because I love you. And you know, Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. My command is right now for you to go sell all your stuff, give it all away, and come and follow me. And he goes, I'm not doing that. Then guess what? You don't love me. You're not that interested in eternal life. Because you would realize that there's nothing more important than be right with God. You would realize that, you know what, what would a man exchange for his soul? We're told in this passage, this man exchanged for his soul all of his stuff. All of his money, all of his material things. He's saying to me, you know, and you, and to God, he's saying, you know what? My stuff is more important than God's promise of eternal life. I want it here and now. I'll deal with all that later. And he turned, and the Bible says he became very sad. Some translations say, and he grieved. He was in mourning for the potential death of his stuff. He was in mourning. I'm not giving that up. Now go back to Jesus' reasoning. If you believe I'm God... And you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I say, sell your stuff. You'd sell your stuff. But you don't love me. You don't love God. You love your stuff. And he began to realize how guilty he was before God. But see, knowing we're guilty before God and doing something about it, two different things. I've spoke to many people over the course of my life as a Christian who I can clearly explain the gospel to and bring them to a point of what's your decision and they'll walk away saddened because they know what God requires of them. And they're more interested in their stuff, their goals, their life, their direction, their purpose, their meaning than they are in doing what's right before God. And Jesus flushes it out. And notice the reaction. But indicates a sharp contrast in verse 23. But, you know, that is never a word that you want to be used by God of your life when it comes to him telling you what to do. I told Chuck what to do, but he didn't listen. I told him where I wanted him to go, but he wouldn't go. I told him what I wanted him to do, but he didn't. That is never a word you want to be used in a relationship between you and God. I told him that he needed to repent of his sins, to trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, to receive him as Lord and Savior, but he refused to do so. I told him clearly, concisely. Here we see the downside of wealth. He would have gave some. I'm convinced of that. He would have gave a percentage. He may even split it with God 50-50. I don't know. He would have been willing to negotiate. But when God says it's all or nothing, there's no room to negotiate. Because God doesn't have to negotiate. He's God and we're not. It's his call, not ours. That he offers us anything is by his grace and his mercy that he would want any of us to be with him for all of eternity. 
I mean, stop and look around. There are people I've met and you've met that, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to think about. You may have to spend forever with them. And let's be honest about it. And, you know, and it's like, but God, he's, he's still willing to do that anyway. Because he knows the potential we have in Christ. The point is this. Jesus revealed what it was that kept this man from God and ultimately his kingdom. The wealthy man lived and he loved his possessions more than he loved God. Are we on agreement? Evident. He, his money was his God. That's why Jesus said you can't love both God and money. His materialism indicated he didn't love his neighbor as he loved himself. Because think about it. He was saying go sell your stuff and now give it to the poor. And if you love God, you'll love his people. And if there are people in need, that's why 1 John tells us if you see your brother in need and you're not moved to meet that need, then is the love of God really in you? Because we've got a God who is always moved to meet the needs of his people. So the, the simple answer is, is that usually we can tell whether we have a, a real relationship with God or not by the way what? We live our lives. So if this guy really loved God and God said, sell all your stuff and I want you to give it to people who are in need, then he would have said, hey, that's fine because it's just a tool and a testimony and resource that you've given me to meet the needs of those who have a greater need, which is if we can meet their physical need, then they'll be open to listen to us spiritually. Just as was shared today, if we can get people to love reading and we can get people to go out and work and we can get people to understand that, you know what, they can contribute positively to their life and that reading opens the door for these opportunities. Reading then will ultimately open the door for the greatest opportunity of all, which is to read the Word of God, to be confronted with sin so they understand God loves them, so they can trust in Christ for forgiveness, find mercy at the foot of the cross and, 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 and eternal life through that open tomb. And guess what? We've been able to share the gospel with somebody because they have got their physical needs met first and it led them to be open to listen to to what is it that you have to say because what you've said so far has led us down a positive road then therefore what you must continue to say i'm hoping and trusting that it'll do so as well see that's the way that it works the bottom line is he simply wasn't as good as he thought and you know what neither are you and i We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous, no, not one. We've all, like sheep, gone astray. We're all come in this world in rebellion against God. God uses His Word, His laws, to help us to see what we may be blind to ourselves. I don't care who you meet, and this is a tool for all of us, the person that says, but I'm a good person, it should take you no more than about three minutes to prove to them that they're not as good as they think they are. We're just not. I spoke in a memorial service this week and, you know, and everybody stood up and talked about how good somebody was, but they also started talking about the other side of that person. You know, and the guy's ex-wife was sitting in the front row and I said, I bet you didn't think he was perfect. And that was the first time she said amen during the whole ceremony. That's just the way it is. You know what? None of us are perfect. That's the whole message of Scripture. None of us are righteous. None of us are perfect. You know, we all have, quote, that dark side, that sin nature. See, Jesus told him what to do, and the man rebelled. And while his rebellion was subtle, it was still a no to the command of God. You know, perhaps you struggle, you know, your struggle is not with coveting. 
but maybe with lying, cheating, stealing, lust, rebellion against your parents' authority, whatever it is, you know, to you Jesus might have said, and this is why it's so important, because there are people who say, well, see that, it, it, it was money, you know, God doesn't want people to have money. That's, you're missing the context. You're missing the point. He said to him, go sell his money because he knew that money was his God. To you, he may say, you know what? Stop lying. You want to have eternal life? Stop lying. Stop cheating. Stop stealing from your employer. If you want to have eternal life, stop having sex outside of marriage. If you want to have eternal life, stop cheating on your spouse. If you want to have eternal life, stop doing drugs. Stop getting drunk. If you want to have eternal life... And see, God knows what that one area is in our life that we can say we're good in all the other ones and He looks right at us and says, but that's where you're dirty. Stop doing that. And then you go, oh, I can't stop doing that. Oh, you better repent. Because there's no other way to be saved from the consequence of sin. And so the rich young ruler is a warning to people who want a Christian faith that doesn't change their values or upset their lifestyle. There's a whole bunch of people out there like that. What do I got to do to have eternal life? Do I have to go to church three out of four weeks? Do I have to give a certain percentage of my income? Do I have to do a daily devotion? Do I have to read through my Bible? Uh, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And you know what he says? You've got to turn from sin. You've got to turn to God. You've got to do what he tells you to do. And all through the message, all through the gospel of Luther, the message message is clear. If you want to have eternal life, then you've got to recognize that you are guilty of sin before God. You've got to turn from sin. You've got to trust in Christ. His death, His resurrection, you have to receive Him as your Savior, and those who believe upon Him shall be saved. If you want to have eternal life, that's the message. And now you and I are in the same quandary or dilemma that this guy was in. What are you going to do about it? But, make excuses, turn and walk away from the greatest offer that's ever been laid out to humankind, to mankind? Or are you going to say, you know what? I see, I recognize a good deal when I see it. And I'm going to turn from sin. And I'm going to trust in Christ. And I'm going to receive Him as my Savior. And you know what? And then it will become evident whether you've truly been born again because your life will be changed. Your lifestyle will be changed. Your thoughts will be changed. Your heart will be changed. You will no longer be the person you used to be because if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. We will now walk or live in a manner that's worthy of our calling. So the questions are multiple at this point. But have you repented of sin? Have you trusted in Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection on your behalf? Have you received Him as Lord and Savior? Have you been born again by the will of God and the work of God, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit? And is it evident by the fact that you're not the same person you used to be before you repented? Praise God if that's the case. If there's been no change in your life, then you better examine yourself to see if you are really in the faith because you are deceived and still dead in your sins and will be held accountable before a holy and mighty and righteous God and you will be judged accordingly. This man walked from that. And my heart breaks when I think how sad he is. The response of Jesus is, and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. You want to talk about the great downside of wealth? How hard it is for wealthy people to inherit the kingdom of God. And why is that? 
Because what I've learned from experience in dealing with people who have much possessions is that it is way too easy to trust in your stuff than trusting in God. It is too easy to become arrogant. It is too easy to become prideful. It is too easy to lean all your trust upon your bank account and your your finances and your resources to be able to free up this or that, to liquidate this or that in case this happens over here. I got this and I can move it over here and just kind of redistribute the wealth. It is so easy to depend upon yourself that you don't see any need to depend upon God. And so he's saying, you know what? It's really hard for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'll guarantee you during the course of a week, you will never hear anybody say that about wealth, the pursuit of wealth or riches in our culture. You know what? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't pursue getting wealthy because you know what? It'll hinder you in your relationship with God. Everybody goes, yeah, right. Uh huh. Only people say stuff like that or people don't have it. You know, isn't that what happens? That's what it says. You know what? Yeah, praise God. Hey, you know, when was the last time you praised God? You don't have much. Oh, but how many of you have been coveting the stuff that other people have? See? Ooh, got me. You know, it's like, seriously, when was the last time you praised God? Say, Lord, thank you. I don't have much. Because there's not much keeping me from a relationship with you. There's not stuff getting in the way because I got to totally lean on you because this is so far bigger than me, out of my hands and beyond my control that I got to turn to you and trust in you. There are many people praying that, hey, Lord, you know what? And if my stuff, when was the last time I prayed? If my stuff is keeping me from this relationship that we can have and it would be closer, then you know what? Take my stuff away. Listen how uncomfortable you people are. It's like those, those laughs that go, ha, 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 is he serious? Uh-huh. Hey, you know what? I, I mean, this is, this is going to sound nuts, but you know, in, in all the confusion of how I've been praying about you know, my cancer, it's been like, Lord, but you know what? Don't remove it from me if it means I'll be removed from you. Don't take it from me if it means I'm going to wander from you. And if this is what you need to keep me close to you, then you know what? Praise God. And, and, and you know what? And you know better than me about me because I'm not sure about me. You know, I know me, I know me, you know, and you know me better than me. So how much more do you know about me that I don't know about me and that I already know enough stuff that goes, you know what, within me, there's a lot of messed up stuff that could happen at any moment. And so we go, praise God that God, you know that. And if this is what you need to keep me close to you, then keep me close to you. But you know what, if you want to take it away from me and I can still stay close to you, then that would be good too. (laughs) See, and you're all sitting there going like this. Well, Lord, you know what? If I can stay close to you and you can give me a lot of stuff, I'll take the stuff. But, you know, keep me close to you as well. I mean, it's a dangerous thing. You know, I talk to people that, you know, have a lot of money. And you know when the hardest thing to deal with when you have a lot of money is that what keeps you in check? What keeps you from getting out of control? Because most people that have limited resources, the reason that we get kept within limitation is because we can't do anything more than that. And people that sell stuff, they go, what can you afford? What can you afford? Your monthly payment, what can you afford? Well, what if you had so much money that, you know what, monthly payments were nothing you'd ever have to consider again? What if you had so much money that you could say, Lord, you know what, I can still give to you and this doesn't affect my tithing, this doesn't affect my giving, this doesn't affect me meeting the needs of my family. You know, I've got so much, you know, disposable income and wealth that, you know, I'll never have to deal with those questions anymore. Then it becomes a matter of, you know what, what stops me 
from doing whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Now, some of you people are sitting there going like this. Well, give me a chance just once to see what that's like. And then I'll have an answer for you. But I'll guarantee you that, you know what, it just goes to show you that in our culture, we don't understand the downside of wealth. We see all the upside, we don't see any downside. And all I'm here to tell you from first-hand experience is dealing with people who understand that, they know what a struggle it is, because God, what keeps us from getting crazy? That's a very real problem. And that's the downside of wealth. I can do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. And if I could talk my wife or my husband or my family or whoever my little accountability group in, if I can talk them into the fact that it's okay, then man. And if I got enough people around me to hold me accountable and I don't like what they say anymore, then I'll find new people. That's the other side of it. I don't want somebody in my face telling me what they think I should do or shouldn't do because I don't like that type of confrontation. And so I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And you see see how real a problem this can be? See, and that's why, you know, he said the response of Jesus is it is hard for wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that's exactly what it means. So, I mean, I read all this stuff. It's like, you know, there was a, there's a porthole in the gate and the camel used to have to get down on its knees and crawl under. No, this, this is hyperbole. It's exaggeration. What he's saying is, you know what? It is, it is, it is impossible for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, get a, you know, a little sewing needle and try to shove a camel through there. You know, it's like, what is he saying? He's saying, you know what, it's impossible. But, notice this. Then they said, who can be saved? If you're talking about rich people, it's as hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God as it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. We understand that that's an impossibility. Then who can be saved? And here's what God says. But he said, the things impossible with men are possible with God. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Salvation is impossible outside of God. It is God's doing. Who can forgive sin? God. And outside of God's mercy and grace, none of us would ever be saved from the consequence of our sin. It as it is, listen, it is as impossible as it is for a camel to go through an eye of a needle is for you and I to get into heaven outside of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. You can't get to heaven. I can't get to heaven. No man comes unto the Father but through me, Jesus said. It is impossible to be saved from sin outside of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his message. That was the gist of the whole conversation. And you know what? We're going to find out here in another couple of weeks that there was a rich man. His name was Zacchaeus. And guess what? Zacchaeus repented of his sin, trusted in Jesus Christ, and became a son of Abraham, saved because, you know what? He responded to the message. It is not impossible for rich people to be saved. 
It is not impossible for poor people to be saved. It is not impossible for young or old, rich or poor, black or white, male or female, educated, uneducated, Americans or other countries of nationality and origin. It is not possible for anyone to be saved because with God, all things are possible. And in closing, you got to love this part as we wrap all this up because I just... I get, you, I just love this. So Peter says, hey, we left everything to follow you. And what he's saying, what's in it for us? This is great. Man, we left it all. You know, you saw fishing business? No more. Left it all. We're following you. What's in it for us? Peter said. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife, brothers, parents, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. You aren't giving up anything that God's not going to replace. In other passages say, a hundred times, a hundredfold. We're not giving up anything. All we're giving up is sin, death, And all that goes with it when we come to the cross. What are we going to do to avoid the downside of wealth? Let me give you a couple of suggestions. Number one, we must divest ourselves of dependence on our wealth. He who trusts in wealth will be disappointed for it will surely take up wings and fly away. I don't know how many people I talk to. They got their faith and their hope in their retirement account. They got it in their IRA. They got it in the stock market, the ups and downs of the market. They got it in their business. They've got it in all this stuff. And all I'm here to share with you and, and, and try to encourage you, don't put your faith and hope in stuff because just as quickly as God has given it, just as quickly as it can be taken away, your trust and your hope has got to be in the Lord and you will never be disappointed. Now, here's the second thing, and it gets a lot more personal here, and that is that we must also invest our wealth in kingdom matters, and as our income rises, we must also get to the point where we invest more and more in reaching the world with the Word of God. We've got to invest more and more in making sure that we reach people with the greatest news they can ever hear, and that is, you know what? They are guilty of sin, but God loves them anyway. He sent Christ to die on the cross, raised him from the dead, and whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And it may mean in our culture, because some of us sit here and go, you know, we're not wealthy. Well, you know, all you got to do is talk to people who spend time in any other part of the world and realize how wealthy we are. That we have indoor plumbing, that we have electricity, that we have air conditioning, that we have refrigerators to put our food in, that we have food to put in it that we have clothes to put on our back, that we have a roof over our head. You know, we become so, so blinded to the blessings of God because we're exposed to Him so regularly that it's so subtle that we don't even realize how blessed that we are. We've got to get outside of our, this bubble and see the rest of the world and realize how blessed we are and the accountability that we have before God. We have got to get to the point where, you know what, we make personal sacrifices in order to reach people with the gospel that we have to say no to ourself and our desires and our um, you know, desire to accumulate more things. 
When was the last time you said no to a vacation and took that money and used it for the Lord's work? When was the last time you said no to maybe something new, a new car, new furniture, made some sacrifice that said, no, we want to invest it in the kingdom of God? See, we rarely say no to ourselves and we give to God with what is left over that we look at as disposable, but there's very rarely in our culture a sacrifice to give to God's work. And I'm always hesitant to talk about things like this because some of you are sitting there going, oh, building, vision fund, building program. You know what? I don't do that. This is in the context of what we have just heard from God's voice. And it has to deal with this in context, and that is, when was the last time that we actually suffered for Christ's sake in order to take resources and use it to build God's kingdom? And that's between you and the Lord. And there's no answer for that. In this guy's case, he said, you know what, you need to give it all up, because if you don't give it all up, then I don't have you completely. Others, he may say, you need to give up this amount or that amount or whatever it is. And and you know what? And only God knows that. And only you know that. But my challenge to you is, you know, why should we do this? Because you know what? There's nothing that you're going to give to God that he's not going to restore a hundredfold in his kingdom. You can't lose. I can't lose. And we're not buying our way to heaven because it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that you and I can never boast before Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be uh, confronted again by your word. God, it's our prayer that uh, you would draw us individually close to you. It is my prayer that if there are those who think that they can buy their way into heaven, that you clearly explain to him or her that there's only one way to find forgiveness, and that is to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of their sins, to repent and to turn from that sin that you've revealed to their heart, to trust in Jesus and to receive Him as Lord and Savior. We thank you for the work that you do in our life as we are born again by your will and not by our own human efforts. We thank you that it's by grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that we can never boast of how good we are because there's nothing good in any one of us. Lord, we pray now that we would use the resources that you've entrusted to us as stewards and managers of your resources in such a way that we can reach this world with the word of God, that we would give sacrificially, that we would give generously, that we would give, as, as uh, the book of Second Corinthians tells us, you know, with, with uh, hilarity or with cheerful hearts knowing that you will multiply those funds, that you will multiply those resources, and that you will turn them into uh, fruit for your kingdom's sake. So, Lord, that's our prayer today. Hit us where it hurts the hardest, and oftentimes it's in our wallet, to really test whether we truly love you or not. May we who love you obey your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen.